Our Father, we thank you that you are here this morning, present as you have been all over the world and are even this very hour as the Word of God proclaimed. And we thank you that we're part of the church universal. Wherever men and women are meeting and are praising and worshiping you and studying the Word of God together, you have promised that there you are in the midst. And how we can understand that is beyond our understanding, literally, at this point. But someday when we pass your presence, we'll be able to grasp how it is you can be everywhere, equally present, powerfully present, as if we are the only important people in our eyes. We thank you, Lord, that your love is for all, that you are present with us here this morning, that you are here to speak through your word to each of us, even though the word was written in this, these passages that we'll be looking at this morning 3,500 years ago, yet they are powerful to speak to us today as we come to the end of the second millennium. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we can trust in your reality. And we ask that throughout our Sunday school and church hour this morning that you will be working your great will in Christ's name. Amen. The final chapter of the book of Numbers, which is chapter 36, deals specifically with just one topic. And that is the topic of inheritance through marriage. If, if you will remember a few weeks back when we dealt with the 27th chapter of Numbers, there were these five women who came to Moses and said, Our father has died, therefore he will receive an inheritance when we get into the land. We have no brothers, therefore we are requesting the inheritance for ourselves. These are the daughters of Zelophehad. One of the important understandings of God is that a great attribute of God is justice. Above, or not necessarily above, but equal to all of his other attributes, God is just. God is fair. And so out of his justice, said to Moses, <clears throat> grant to these ladies an inheritance in the land of Canaan. But as we look at this particular chapter, we discover that this right that was given to these ladies had certain limitations to it. So let's turn to the 36th chapter and let's begin reading at verse 6. This is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. <clears throat> Thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe. For the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who comes into possession of an inheritance of any tribe of the sons of Israel shall be wife to one of the family of the tribe of her father, so that the sons of Israel each may possess the inheritance of his father. Thus no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another tribe. For the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the daughters of Zelophehad did. Mala, Tirzah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Noah, the sons of Zelophehad, married their uncle's sons. They married those from families of the sons of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained with the tribe of the family of their father. There was a higher law, you see. The higher law that God had ordained was the tribal land given to any tribe will remain in that tribe in perpetuity. 
And remember when we studied previously in the Pentateuch, we talked a little about the year of Jubilee. Whenever there was any sale of land, it was only to be momentarily. In the Jubilee, the 50th year, it was to return back to the original owners of the property. So obviously, whenever you sold property, it had to be prorated, almost like a lease rather than actually a sale of the land. And this was God's ordinance in order to keep order within Israel. One of the things you discover about God as you study through the whole scripture is God is the God of order. He does everything decently and in order. He's not the God of chaos. He is not a God of chaos. It is out of us that God created order and brought the world into existence. And so as we study about him, we have to know that whenever you encounter something, which claims to be Christian, but it is absolutely chaotic. Don't believe it. It is man's perversion of truth because God is a God of order. That doesn't mean God expects us all to sit in little rows you know, and, and uh, do just exactly the same thing, go through some kind of ritual. But he is a God of order. And, and, and he is a God of that which is decent. And that's what we find here. The property is to remain within this tribe because otherwise you're going to have people selling the, the land here. You're going to have women marrying out of the tribe and caking their inheritance with them. And pretty soon it's all chaos. And, and land titles would become absolutely confused. So in this case, what we discover is that the daughters of Zelophehad could retain their inheritance only if they married within the tribe of Manasseh, which was their tribe. Now, that is a number that they, so you might be of the same tribe, but your connection to whomever you married would be, you know, could be far away. In this particular case, of course, it says they married their uncle's sons, which would be their first cousins. And, of course, that's common, common throughout history. Um, we know Abraham married his half-sister. Not that that was something that was, uh, you know, advocated. But further we get away from the beginning, uh, the more that becomes a real problem, as we know. But... For these ladies, this was apparently not a problem. And so they each found a husband, and the whole thing resolved itself in the way that God would have it too. Now, what's interesting about this is that where was this land that these ladies were given as an inheritance? You remember we studied all about their inheritance back in the 27th chapter. And, and what's interesting to find out is their land was, in, was, was the portion east of the Jordan. Because half the tribe of Manasseh was given territory up around the Sea of Galilee, but on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, in what is today the country of Jordan or the country of Syria. And so that's where they had their land. And so we're talking about them settling it now. They moved into it now. It wasn't something yet ahead because the conquest was ahead. They were actually settling in it now. So it became, of course, an urgent issue for them. And the whole thing was resolved because God is a God of order. We're moving now into the book of Deuteronomy. So if you'll turn to page 232. <laughs> 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 the book of Deuteronomy is the very last scroll of the Mosaic Pentateuch. It is comprised largely of Moses' farewell speeches. And since it also records his death, I think it becomes obvious that it was the last of his writings. Now, the title, Deuteronomy. 
one of those uh, book names that when you were young, if you had anything to do with the church when you were young, you were trying to memorize the books of the Bible. You know, I mean, what is this word here? Uh, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means repetition of the law. The law repeated. It comes from the Greek and it is the title given to the book in the Septuagint. The translation, the very first translation of the Hebrew Scripture into Greek, which occurred about 150 years or so before Christ. This was the name given to the book. And the Hellenistic Jews in the time of Christ referred to it by this name, Deuteronomy, or the Greek version of it. There is considerable material in Deuteronomy that is not recorded elsewhere in the Pentateuch. So although it says rep, the name means repetition of the law, you don't start with Deuteronomy 1 and just find, oh, I read all this before, you know. You do find much referred to again, but there is a considerable, considerable amount of new material in the book of Deuteronomy. A portion of it is comprised of recounting the history of the Exodus and it includes a restatement of the law, which was originally given in Exodus and then expanded in the book of Leviticus. Now, what's interesting about this is that, as was true of so many of the Old Testament writings, the Hebrews referred to this book by the first words of the book. This is the common way by which the Hebrews referred to a scroll. The scroll didn't have a big name at the top, so you could turn to this scroll and say, this is Deuteronomy, you know. It, it, they simply referred to it by the first name, first words in the scroll, which are, these are the words. And they abbreviated it to just words, Dabarim. This is the Dabarim. This is the book Dabarim, or the scroll Dabarim, words. And as I said, it was the Septuagint translators who changed it to Deuteronomy. It might be, I suppose, legitimate to ask why Moses felt, or the Lord, of course, felt it was necessary to restate the law. I mean, it's here. Why state it again? Well, the foundational answer is simply that God knows that you and I do not learn unless something is repeated over and over and over again. Now, I, pro I, I suppose everyone in this room can attest to the fact that you've learned the same lesson probably several times. You know, oh, yes, oh, really. Running flat into the wall. Oh, shoot, I should have remembered this from last time, you know. <laughs> and God understands that. The specific instance, specific to this instance, was the fact that the generation that had witnessed the giving of the law, the generation that had stood at the base of Mount Sinai and seen the mount, felt the mountain quake and heard the roar of the fire and seen the fire and the thunder and seen Moses go up into the cloud and come back all bright lit, you know, that generation was now buried in the ground. That generation wasn't here any longer to attest and say to the younger generation, I know it's true because I saw it. They're buried in the sands of the Sinai. It is the generation now that's about to inherit the promised land, which had been nothing more than children at the time of the Sinai experience or not even born yet because that experience was 39 years before. 
So someone could have been born after that and be 38 years old, you know, the age of uh, certainly accountability, uh, the age of even moving into leadership. And therefore, they needed to know. They had not themselves, in many cases, witnessed Moses' 40-day, 40 40-night 40 experience on the top of Sinai, and therefore they needed to hear it restated. So the generation that Joshua was about to lead into the Promised Land was given Deuteronomy for at least the three factors that I've listed on your outline. First, as a reaffirmation of the law in its entirety, not just certain parts of it. You know, one of the signs of a sect or of a cult, I should say, one of the signs of a cult is the picking and choosing of what you want to believe from the Bible. Ah, I think I'll believe this. Ah, I don't want to believe that, you know. Uh, kind of picking what you want and rejecting what you don't want. That's a cult. Throughout history, that's cults. There was a man who lived about... Uh, 1,600 years ago, his name was Martian, who literally went through the New Testament and cut out everything that he didn't like and just kept what he did like, and he called that the New Testament. Well, you know, Thomas Jefferson did the same thing. Thomas Jefferson cut out certain parts of the Bible, mostly the ones that had to do with miracles, because he couldn't believe them. He was a deist, and deists didn't believe in miracles. And, and so he kind of, you know, made the Bible in his own image. We in the scripture says we are created in the image of God and we try to create God in our image and we have a pathetic God. And that's the God so, so many worship, a pathetic God. And we see that every once in a while, even as we did this year on television, as we watched that guy tell about his, everybody's going, you know, his little crew, group going up to the rocket ship that's flying behind Hale-Bopp, you know, it's just a pathetic, pathetic thing. And you hear the witnesses of the people who say, ah, yes, he knows, and, and we believe it. And, and they even have t-shirts out now which say, what if they were right? Yeah, right. What if they were right? It's so tragic. And that's the way most of the world lives, creating a God in their own image and worshiping the God of their choice, rather than listening to the word of the sovereign God, creator of the universe, who says, hear this is the truth. Walk ye in it. So there is to be a reaffirmation of the law in its entirety, given by the same man who had received it on top of Mount Sinai, not by even Joshua. Even though when they get into the land, Joshua will have them carve the, the law in stone after Moses is dead. Moses is the one who is writing Deuteronomy. The same man who had received the law in the first place is now giving it to this next generation, reaffirming it to them. Secondly, it serves as a reminder of the fact that the law which was given on Mount Sinai was not given for the generation that was buried in the Sinai sands, but for their generation and for their generation to teach the next generation ad infinitum. It was to be taught generation after generation after generation. It was the eternal word of God. Thirdly, we find that there is an expansion here. Further things that God says through Moses in understanding the law, rounding it out so it was understood <clears throat> in its entirety, that its application would be understandable. It seems that Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy in the final days or weeks, I suppose, of his life. 
The Israelites had completed the conquest of the Transjordan area, and they are camped on the plain of Moab at the head of the Dead Sea, near the mouth of the Jordan, uh, the, yeah, the mouth of the Jordan emptying into the Dead Sea. They're camped on that plain east of the Jordan, looking across into Canaan itself. And in the distance they see the walls of Jericho over there. And they know that is the first hurdle that they must cross over, that they must leap. And so they're poised for launching this invasion. Moses had now led them for nearly 40 years and he was transferring the mantle of power to Joshua. And so Moses says, these are God's last words through me to you. Heed those words. So in the 11th month of the 40th year of the Exodus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses penned his final instructions. And if we were to sum up the book of Deuteronomy in one sentence, this would be the sentence. He is warning Israel to shun the influence of the Canaanites, a.k.a. the world, and keep their covenant with Yahweh. Shun the influence of the world and keep your covenant with God. The message of God to Israel. The message of God to us. Shun the influence of the world and keep your commitment to God. I mean, how can you more abbreviate or be succinct in stating what God is saying? In every book of the Bible, for that matter. In chapters 1 through 4 of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses reviews the history of the Exodus. You know, looking at Deuteronomy from 3,500 years later, we can kind of sanitize it and we can separate ourselves from the emotion of the man Moses. Moses was not an impartial observer. Moses was not just some kind of an automatic writer whom the Spirit of God was speaking to and he was just doing this, you know, without it passing through his mind. Moses poured his heart into these words. And it was, I think, with great emotion that he records this book of Deuteronomy as his final words, his epilogue, as it were. And in it, he, he describes the few victories that they had won, and then he also describes the many tragedies that they had experienced in the previous 40 years. And I don't think that as you read through those passages, you find any matter-of-fact statements made Moses makes his statements with his heart. For example, in the second chapter in verse 14, he says this, Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zared was 38 years. <laughs> you know, I don't think Moses is just writing that down with matter of fact. I mean, his heart was bleeding. Folks, it took us 38 years to get from Kadesh Barnea to cross over the brook Zared. The distance is 120 miles. A snail could crawl faster. It took us 38 years. That's three miles a year. Some of you, for exercise, walk more than that a day. And of course, it wasn't that they didn't just were slow. It's just that because of disobedience, they wandered around and walked thousands of miles out in the desert until 
as of course the end of that verse says, all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them <clears throat> because at Kadesh Barnea they had said to God, no. One thing you don't say to the sovereign God is no. We say, as Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we say or else we wander for 38 years in the desert, as did Israel. Ever wonder why some Christians have such tragic lives? I'm not saying that Christians don't have tragedies in their lives who are following the Lord dearly. They do. We all do, because we go the way of all men. But why it is some people who call, to be, call themselves Christians, every day is a tragedy. There's no victory. It's because they're in the desert. They have said no. They've rebelled. They have not been willing to go. And as a result, they're wandering around until they finally learn. And hopefully they'll learn before they pass over Jordan. I think Roses wrote these passages with great pain. I think it just hurt Moses to say, folks, it took 38 years to go from here to there. You stand on a high hill, you can see Kadesh Barnea and the brook Zared. It took 38 years. And Moses had to live through every single day of those 38 years. Not that Moses was sinless or guiltless, but he was God's man. And he had the heart of God. He had received the word of God and he was the spokesman of God. Just try to put yourself in Moses' sandals from time to time. And really, that's the kind of compassion God wants us to have in the world in which we're living. It's easy to isolate ourselves. It's easy, easy in our society, particularly when we consider religion to be a personal issue, which, of course, it is. But, I mean, nobody else's business is, is of course, the standard American way. We are individualistic in our society. That's been our tradition. And so it's easy to fall behind that and, and to not care. I mean, it's one thing to not go out and grab people by the lapel and say, you know, you're going to go to hell. To the other side where we don't even care. In the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy, we have a restatement of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which had been given originally 39 years before to Moses as he stood on the burning mountain. In the 31st verse of this chapter, Moses reminded them of the source of the expansion of the Decalogue that fills Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We can summarize the law in the Decalogue, but the total law is given in its expanded version. In other words, it's kind of like the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States is given as a skeleton to be filled out according to need. The Decalogue was the skeleton and God built the framework around it in the remaining portions of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in which he explained what all this means and what are the ramifications of thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not you know, bear false witness and so forth. What does that mean? How must you live your life to demonstrate those realities? Let's look at verse 31, where we read, But as for you, this is God speaking to Moses, Stand here by me, 
that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. Now, this is a repeat, a repeat statement. This has happened prior to this time, and Moses is now recounting this to them. He is saying, that's what God said. He told me to stand here by him that he might speak all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach to them. That's what the Pentateuch is made up of. Not just that simple little uh, one statement of ten laws, but all that it meant and how it was to be applied. All of that is the law, the Torah. And he completes the chapter with an exhortation which I believe has to be a cry from the depths of the soul of this man. Verse 32, So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Moses didn't give that as matter of fact. He didn't just say to them, oh, by the way, you know, if you obey this, things will be better. No, no. Moses' heart was bleeding for these people. He had led for 40 years. He had been their counselor, their guide, the, the spokesman of God to these people. Who, he had been their father confessor, if you will. And Moses is saying, folks, you must obey the command of the Lord. You must obey the command of the Lord so that it will go well with you, so that your days will be long, and so you will possess this land. God's promises, as we've emphasized before, are always conditional. You obey, this will happen. You disobey, and that won't happen. You disobey and it will not go well with you. You disobey and your days will not be prolonged. You disobey and you'll lose the land. And if that isn't the story of the Old Testament, I don't know what the story is. Story of a people who, yes, they obeyed today and tomorrow they didn't. And next day they did. And you read the book of Judges and the people are like this. You don't need to go to Great America to have a roller coaster ride. Just read Judges. You get a whole lot less dizzy for one thing even though you stand in amazement saying, whoa, I think this is something I'm familiar with already, you know, because we go through a somewhat similar roller coaster ride. Moses continues his exhortation on into chapter 6. Chapter 6 may be one of the absolute key chapters of all of the Old Testament. Certainly it is. Because he brings this, this, this whole exhortation of the first part of the book of Deuteronomy to a full crescendo here in this particular passage. Let me, let me read verses 4 through 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you rise and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign 
on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. To the Jews, you're talking about the apex of their faith. They call this passage by the first word of the passage. Hear, Shema. This is the Shema, which is the Hebrew word, hear, exclamation point in this particular instance. This passage absolutely underscores the ultimately, utterly important truth of hearing the Word of God, of obeying the Word of God, and of teaching the Word of God. He is talking about here the very crux of life. If you want to come to the heart and core of life, this is it. There is nothing deeper or farther or more important in life than what it says here in the Shema. To hear the word of the Lord, to obey the word of the Lord, and to teach others the word of the Lord. There is nothing more important in life than that. And yet Satan has us pretty well hoodwinked a lot of the time. And we don't consider the word of the Lord to be anything more than something we come to listen to maybe a little bit on Sunday. And to obey if it's convenient. And if it's inconvenient to figure a way by which it doesn't say what somebody says it says or what it seems to say. Which is another way by which cults are born. To take the clear word of the Lord and twist it and make it say something other than what it says. Although the God of the universe has understanding so deep and so broad that it's infinite and will never grasp it all even through all eternity, he knows how to make the truth plain and simple because he knows how we are created. And so when you read the Word of God, you don't have to go into the Word of God and say, oh my goodness, what does this really mean? Let me see what's behind these words and try to come up with some kind of formula for, for in-depth truth, you know. This is the Gnostic pattern. The Gnostics, the early heretics of the church, tried to look behind what the Word of God says plainly and, and make it say something else uh, to deny everything that has to do with the flesh and to emphasize the mind only. And, and so, so you get to the point where what you do in the flesh is irrelevant because it's only the mind that matters. Well, the Scripture is plain because it was given by, by God to plain men to teach to other plain men and women such as you and I. I mean, I don't care how far educated you or I may be. We're never educated to the point where we understand the Scripture in some hidden way that somebody else who is much less educated can't understand in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I really get tired of these so-called experts who come along and, and try to tell us that the Word really means this, not what it sounds like it means. There is a very interesting commentary on human nature that comes out of this. And it's seen in the fact that the Jews would eventually convert what is clearly a spiritual truth into a doctrine of works. That is one of Satan's greatest effective tools, is to try to get us to believe that doing works of one sort or another, a ritual of one sort or another is going to bring us into better standing with God than sheer faith and understanding and obedience. And as you know, the church has adopted so many rituals 
And uh, some churches have gone to the point where the ritual is everything. And if you don't go by the ritual exactly why there's, you know, you're going to suffer the consequences. If you spill a little bit of the grape juice on the floor, you've, you've profaned the blood of Jesus Christ or, you know, whatever happens to be the teaching of that branch of the church. Other, from other passages of Scripture, we can understand that when the Lord says through Moses, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That's metaphorical teaching. He's not saying literally go out there and carve it on your door. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, but I'm just saying that's not the heart of the teaching here. That's not what he is saying. But what the Jews would eventually do is sit down and write out little passages of Scripture. The Shema uh, and the, some of the ver, uh, passages around it and, and another passage in, in Exodus, they would actually write these out in little pieces of parchment. They'll put them in little leather boxes and they will bind it on their forehead and they will bind it on their left arm in morning prayer. And so what they do is they convert a spiritual truth into a talisman, a good luck charm, an, a, a, a work which somehow demonstrates a reality of their faith. Jesus castigated the Pharisees, saying, you guys go around broadening your phylacteries in order to be noticed by men. And that most likely refers to making those bands a little wider by which you're binding this box on your arm and on your forehead so everybody will know how spiritual and holy you really are. And the clear teaching of the Word is, you bind this box with these parchment scriptures on your forehead, but if you don't know those scriptures in your heart, why are you bothering? God's not impressed with parchment and leather. <laughs> it's not important to him. doesn't mean anything. God doesn't look on the outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. The scripture clearly, scripture clearly teaches. Verse 4 of this passage is the foundation statement of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And that's one of the reasons by which they attacked Jesus Christ. Surrounded as these people were with pagans who worship numerous, capricious, unmerciful, unloving, lustful, often conflicting gods, it was immensely reassuring to have a statement saying, Yahweh is the one and only true God and you can junk all the rest. Imagine how reassuring that is. I hope that's reassuring to you today to know that as you believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, and strength that you have the answer and you don't have to worry about hail bops or anything other, any other bops or whatever's going on. You don't have to worry about every wind of doctrine that comes along or every other person that comes along and says, no, you don't worship God this way, you worship Him that way. You can just pass it all away. <coughs> Because your foundation is in Jesus, in the truth. And that is so reassuring. You probably have run into, as I have, people who just, oh, they're just nervous because they're not sure about what this new idea is, right? And they don't really understand it. And once they get into that one, they find, oh, no, there's another one over here. And James, of course, talks about people cast about with every wind of doctrine, like, like the foam cast up on the beach. What is so important is the teaching throughout Scripture that God is self-consistent. 
Because that is not the doctrine of paganism. The pagans had to placate their gods because they never knew what the gods were going to do. And they knew even if they appeased the gods, the gods still might do dirt to them. Because almost all pagan gods are capable of both good and evil. And you didn't know what you were going to get. It's almost like the roll of the die. And it really was. The, the cutting open of the duck and looking at its liver and the, oh man, you know, the liver's this way, we're in trouble. And we think, sane human beings believe this? God is self-consistent. He is immutable. What he said yesterday is true today. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What Jesus said to his people 1,900 years ago is true today and will be eternally true. And through Moses came the truth by which the worshipers could know how to worship and what to believe, and they didn't have to be confused, not knowing, oh man, if I don't do this right, zap, if I do that, zap. You know, this is what to do. This is the way, walk in it. In his commentary on this passage in Deuteronomy, the message just don't hit it that hard. Jack Deere says, the monotheistic doctrine of the Israelites lifted them out of insecurity since they had to deal with only one God who dealt with them by a revealed, consistent, righteous standard. A revealed, consistent, righteous standard. It wasn't hidden. Which of the Gnostics, they make a big deal about that, you know. Oh, the truths of God are hidden and you have to learn all the secret inner little uh, mysteries of God and you have to learn this formula and that formula and you have to learn how to go, mm, and you know, in order to get to the truth of God. That's not what the scripture teaches us. Deere goes on to say that the emphasis upon the unity of God does not eliminate the reality of the Trinity. Look at the Shema, the first passage. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. In the Hebrew, that says, Yahweh is our Elohim. Elohim is, as we have talked about before, the plural. And some would go, oh, well, you know, it's the plural of majesty. It's sort of like Queen Elizabeth when she's out in the so throne, when she was making ruling, she said, we did this and we do that. And our majesty does this, uh, you know, supposedly as if, as majesty, you're speaking for the whole realm. No, 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 no. God is not speaking for the whole realm. God is speaking for himself. And what he is saying there, he is referring to the triune Godhead. The next phrase says, Yahweh is one. And that's where the Jews really harp, harp on that. And they say, it says, God is one, not a trinity. But the word for one is a had. And if you, we will turn to it, but in Genesis 2, chapter 24, you know the passage, it says, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become a had, one. If my wife and I, if we are one, and yet we are two, what's the problem with figuring out how God can be one and yet be three? In fact, Jesus, in John 10, 30, said, I and the Father are one. And the word there is unity. And what was the reaction? The Jews clearly understood what he was saying because it says they again picked up stones to stone him with. And Jesus said, for which of my good works are you going to stone me? And they say, it isn't because of any good works. It's because you being a man say, are saying that you are God. 
And then Jesus goes on to talk about, you know, the little G word that's used over, you know, several times in the scripture, just to show them the foolishness of what they're doing. But the point of the matter was they understood that Jesus was saying that I am one with the Father, essentially the same. No different. I am Yahweh. Whoa, you know. They could not get that at all. It only comes, of course, by divine enlightenment. And that's why if you have any Jewish friends, prayer is what's going to change them, not harping on the word or whatever else, even though they need to know the word. But it's prayer because the Spirit of God is the only one who can open their heart to see the truth of who Jesus really is. In his dealings with the Pharisees, Jesus highlighted the paramount importance of verse 5 of this passage where it says, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Let me, in closing, just turn to that passage in Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And Jesus, when he made that statement, was quoting from the Shema, from the second verse there. But he was also quoting from a more obscure passage for our, from many people's point of view, Leviticus 19:18, where it tells us that we must love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus was putting the two together and saying, this is the foundation of the law. This is the foundation of the law. The Pharisees were very single-minded in their practice of religious rit ritual, but they lacked an essential ingredient and that was genuine love. And you remember, that's what destroyed the church at Ephesus. Jesus said, return to your first love. You've lost it. And Paul spends the whole of 1 Corinthians 13 contrasting the virtues of love with what we might call pharisaical religiosity. And he sums it all up with the words, but the greatest of these is love. And, of course, the word is, as you have heard in probably multitude of sermons, the agape word, not the brotherly love which everybody has or the erotic love, but the love of God, which can only be in your heart if God instills it there. And this is really the key to the Shema. Well, we will move into the passage that follows the Shema next time.